Families are messy, aren't they? We love our families, but at times they are the very hardest people to love. We're looking today at a passage that brings to a head a decades-long conflict between two brothers. And I believe this passage offers a powerful word of hope to those of us who find ourselves in a strained situation with a family member. Before I read it, let me give a little background for those who might not be familiar with all the story that led up to this moment between them. You see, Jacob and Esau were twins, and Esau was the firstborn, if only perhaps by moments. Their father, Isaac, favored Esau, though Rebekah, their mom, favored Jacob. As the firstborn, Esau was entitled to two things. He was entitled to a double portion of the family inheritance, though he willingly gave that up one day for a mere bowl of stew from his conniving brother. The other thing he was entitled to was the Father's blessing, this uh, hands-on, spiritual, verbal uh, words of love, which his brother cheated him out of with a bit of clever and deceitful trickery carried out with help from mom. Now, Esau was not just mildly annoyed by this. He was not just a little ticked off. He wanted him dead. So Jacob fled for his life to Haran. And after many years, two marriages, and many children, and much more trickery, Jacob is heading home, a wealthy man. But all that wealth can't buy him the love of his brother, which he longs for. And he also fears him, and rightly so. He sends messengers to Esau, saying that he'll be in the neighborhood. And the messengers return with the news that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. Oh, that last part does not sound good. Jacob is terrified, and so he cries out to God. He prepares this huge gift of hundreds of animals, which he sends out ahead as a peace offering. And then he separates himself from his family and spends a night alone, wrestling until dawn with this mysterious representative of God who packs a mean punch. Jacob comes limping into this scene with a freshly smarting wound to the hip. He is completely vulnerable. And what happens next? Let's read. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. But he himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids drew near, and they and their children, and they bowed down, and Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And finally, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor with my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand. For truly, 
To see your face is like seeing the face of God, since you have received me with such favor. Please accept my gift that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have everything I want. So he urged him, and he took it. Imagine the sheer terror as this scene opens. Jacob looks up and sees 400 men bearing down on him and his family. The last words he'd heard from his brother several years before was a message saying, your brother wants to kill you. And he has no reason to think that sentiment has changed. He's terrified. But ever the planner, the schemer, he sent this massive gift of animals out ahead. And then in this sort of scheming or at least good risk management, he's cutting his losses. So he's dividing up the kids and the wives so that if possible, some might survive. But then, in a rather brave act of leadership, he goes out ahead to meet his fate at his brother's hands. And on the way to him, he bows seven times, displaying both deep humility and deep honor of his brother. When we bow before someone, we say both, I am small and you are great and you are worthy. He's about to die, he's pretty sure, but at least he will go down having done all he could. But then the story takes a dramatic turn. Esau does something entirely unexpected. I suspect it was unexpected even to himself. After all, the 400 men were not brought as the greeting committee. Esau came for blood. But at the sight of Jacob, something happens. He somehow doesn't see an enemy. He sees his brother, as the songwriter, the song, the, the brilliance put it. He recognized him as family, and his heart leapt at that recognition, much as Adam's heart left when he recognized the family resemblance in Eve. Ah, at last. And so seeing his brother, he runs towards him. In a culture where running was seen as a bit undignified, and as I picture it, he exuberantly bear hugs him to the ground, and they're just in this puddle of tears and brotherly affection on the ground. That's why it makes sense to me of why he looked up, it says in the next line. His extravagant display of love is thought to have perhaps been on Jesus' mind as he told the story in Luke of the father who ran to meet his prodigal son and kissed him. It's interesting, the story begins with Jacob looking up and seeing what he thought was an enemy. But now it's Esau's turn to look up and he doesn't understand what he sees. Who are all these people? <laughs> They're your family, Esau. Your family just got a lot bigger. When I think of strife and brokenness in my own family, an antique camera comes to mind. It looks like this one but the actual one is even cooler. And the blasted thing sits in a case in the basement of my home in California, moldering. Why, you may ask, do I speak with such disdain about this lovely antique? Well, you see, when my father was a little boy, he adored his grandfather who lived with them and they ha he had a little amateur photography studio in their home. Evidently, his grandpa told him that when he died, he wanted my dad to have this gorgeous and valuable camera. 
Sadly, it seems he never told any other family members this or put that anywhere in writing. That could have saved a lot of misery. Now, my dad was not the favored child by a long shot. His parents really played favorites, and he was third of three. When he told his parents that the camera was meant to be his, they laughed at him scornfully and even accused him of lying. Years later, as an adult, evidently my dad broke into his parents' home and took the camera. Now, I say evidently because I only heard this bizarre story of the camera heist three years ago when my dad was no longer living to confirm or deny it. But if it's true, it does kind of help to explain, one, why we had the camera, and two, why I grew up not knowing my cousins or my aunts or my uncles, since we were rarely invited to family events, and we were given the cold shoulder when we came, and we were written out of the will. Families are messy. I wonder if there's a broken place in your family that grieves you today. A rivalry, a rupture, a rift, caused by an old misunderstanding or a grievance that never healed. You see, when Jacob and Esau were boys, they lived in an economy of scarcity that their own parents had built. There was not enough blessing to go around, and so they had to fight each other for it. Mom and Dad both played favorites. Some of you may have grown up in homes where attention or affection from your parents was in short supply. That may have been for all sorts of reasons. Your parents weren't evil. Perhaps they were just distracted, caring for a sibling with special needs or an addiction, and you just got the leftovers of their attention. Or maybe one sibling really was the favored one, beautiful, smart, and so talented that your parents pinned all their hopes for the future on that one. Maybe that one was you. We all crave that feeling of being regarded, looked upon with love, blessed, cherished, and treasured by our parents. And when we don't get it, it can get ugly between the siblings. It was ugly for a long time between Esau and Jacob. But in the years since that trickery from Jacob and those murderous threats from Esau, one thing that has changed is that both have experienced abundance. They both have more animals they can count, they both have many children, and this abundance seems to have led to a remarkable generosity of spirit. Let's notice three transformations that have gone on within them that are played out here. The first is that grasping has given way to gratitude. In answer to Esau's question, who are all these people? Notice that Jacob does not say, they are my children. Rather, in a small but significant change of words, he says, these are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. I love this line. It says so much about the transformation God has worked in Jacob's heart. The scheming, striving one, ever living out of scarcity, seems now that all his abundance is a gift from a gracious God, a God who has humbled him even as he has blessed him. And that vision allows him to be generous, both with his gifts and with his honor as he bows before Esau. Secondly, conniving has given way to contentment. 
If you read the chapters leading up to this one, the difference is even more striking. Jacob was a schemer from the womb, and he had strife with not only his brother, but his father-in-law Laban. He was always conniving and scrambling, even with God or God's angelic representative in the previous chapter. And God seems to have affection for Jacob as that wrestling and striving one. But in that weird all-night battle, God was certain to prevail. And so Jacob emerged weak and humbled and yet grateful, for he, he says he saw the face of God. He emerges from that battle oddly, supremely content. You only cheat when you feel that life has been unfair to you, that you're owed something and lacking something. This feeling that life has been unfair to us is crippling to our ability to live at peace with others. Jacob, in the end, has ceased his striving and says to Esau, I have everything I want. This is a contented man. And gratitude and contentment are two crucial keys to being people capable of reconciliation. As we look out at current terrible strife in our world, we see nations grasping for small slivers of land and seeking to settle old scores with violence. We pray for peace. And we zoom the camera in and we see how a lack of gratitude keeps us from offering grace to our own siblings, our own parents. And a lack of contentment can make us resentful about how some bit of money or bit of favor got divided up in our home. And we, some of us who are parents know that our kids can resent that the cake wasn't even cut up perfectly evenly. And on and on it goes. But gratitude and contentment, as crucial as they are, they aren't quite enough. There's a third ingredient we need, and that's vision. And we come to that in what I think is the most remarkable line in this passage, where we see venom being replaced with vision. In verse 10, we hear Jacob utter what to me is one of the beautiful lines in the beautiful book that is Scripture, where Jacob says, To see your face is to see is like seeing the face of God, since you have received me with such favor. It's striking, isn't it? The book of Genesis opens with God beholding his own creation each day and saying, with the satisfaction of an artist or a fine craftsman, this is good. And when he gets to humanity, those made in his very image, he says, ah, now this is very good. See, he created us to bear his image, to be the signposts of his glory and to reflect his goodness. As the writer Victor Hugo put it in Les Miserables, to love another person is to see the face of God. We bear his stamp and seal, and so we ought to be able to see the family resemblance, even in those with whom we are at odds. But the fall tragically distorted our ability to see that in each other. Cain lost the thread entirely. And part, then, of the lifelong journey of discipleship ever since then is this process of vision restoration, retraining our eyes to see the image of God in our brothers and sisters. There's another interesting way that vision runs through this passage. You recall that the passage begins with Jacob looking up thinking he's seeing an enemy horde. And then later it says that Esau also looked up to see Jacob's big family. It's an 
interesting repeated phrase in the book of Genesis. I went back and looked at it, and I was struck that there are very key moments when this phrase comes uh, to bear in the life of Abraham, where um, in Genesis, uh, God says to Abraham, Abram to raise his eyes and look up and see uh, that he's going to make his offspring like the dust of the earth and like the stars. Look up and count the stars. And then uh, when he is in distress that he hasn't had a child, he looks up and sees three men coming to tell him that he will have a child. And then when he is in great distress over the, the trouble that he and Isaac are in, he looks up and sees a ram, a sign of God's redemption and deliverance. So we look up when we need help. It's often an act of prayer in Scripture. And when we look up, we see the abundant provision of God. Sometimes we look up in fear, like Jacob did, thinking we're about to get what's coming to us. But instead of condemnation, we see the face of God in Christ Jesus, full of love and mercy, running to welcome and forgive us, wanting to be with us, giving us all that we need to let go of bitterness and resentment that we might hold towards a family member or a friend. We find that God is healing us. God is giving us the vision to see them as He does, and indeed to see in them the face of God. You see, families are like the school in which we learn to practice grace and forgiveness and where our eyes are trained to look with love. Family is both the hardest and the best school for learning to see the image of God in the humans around us. We can be tempted to want to be dropouts from that school. We say, you know, well, that, didn't round, that round didn't go so well with the old family of origin, so I'll just move on. I'm going to practice loving people and serving them with my friends, my work colleagues, my, even my, uh, the family that I have now, if you're blessed with a spouse and children. Um, but my family of origin, that's beyond hope. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Families have a way of haunting us. Jacob ho had hoped to drop out of school, to be maybe kind of like one of those entrepreneurs who make millions despite not finishing college, like Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg. But he couldn't, and we can't either. We have to stay in school, doing the hard work of serving and loving our siblings and our parents, and even our in-laws. And then someday, if we hope to ever get to the graduate school of loving our children and our spouse and our friends, seeking to see the face of God in them as we serve them and honor and love and forgive them. You see, my dad wanted a camera, but what he really needed was a new lens. The ability to see his own family as a school of grace, even if it was a really hard one marked with alcohol abuse and scorn for him. I so wish he could have found a way to forgive the slights of childhood and take steps towards repairing that rift. If there's someone you're unreconciled with you today, I urge you to be like Esau and run towards them. Run and embrace rather than playing it cool and making them take the initiative since after all, they were the one who was the offender doesn't matter. You be the one to take the first step. 
and be like Jacob as you bring your gifts and your honor, as you live out of the abundance of grace that God has shown you. How did I come to hear this story about my dad just three years ago? After all, my dad has had died over six years ago. Well, I learned it from my uncle while seated around a table with my cousin, one of the five cousins I've gotten to know and come to treasure as adults. What's uncanny sometimes when I see them on Facebook is how much we all look alike. They're family, after all. And we've all learned that we're better people than the stories our parents told us about each other. Now, I had never heard that my dad had stolen the camera, and my uncle had never heard that my dad had been promised the camera. And he and my cousin gave me a beautiful gift that day. They said, we believe you. We believe you. I can really see uh, that your grandpa, that that his grandpa might very well have promised him that. That's That makes sense. We patched the story together and we patched the family a little closer as we did so. If you can name a rift in your family or in a friendship right now, I want to invite you to do three things and to keep doing them daily in the coming week. The first is to give thanks to God in prayer for your relative or your friend. Share with God all the ways that this person has shaped your life for good, whether they meant to or not. Second, think about a gift you could give this person. It might be a physical object you know they would just love, or it might be a service you could give, provide for them. Bring your gift with humility and with honor. Be like Jacob in your generosity. And third, be like Esau in running toward rather than retreating. You take those first steps, like the Father in Jesus' parable. Run towards And you will find that as you go, God will bless you with all that you need to be restored. Let me pray for us as we seek his help in our relationships today. And Father, I just ask for my friends and my brothers and sisters that as if as they hear these words, you are speaking to them about a rift in a relationship, that you would indeed give them all that they need to take some steps towards reconciliation, and that as they go and do that, you would show them your face. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.